It's been an interesting night, hasn't it? It's been a very, very interesting night. But praise God, he does answer a prayer and he does provide us with everything we need. Isn't that right? You know, I, I, when the power went off and I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> and um, I, I just quietly said, Lord, I'm not sure what your plan is here, but uh, if we're meant to have power, can you please let us have it before the service starts? If not, well, we, whatever your will is, and we'll go, get along just the same. So, uh, and praise God, he chose to give us power, which is wonderful. So, yeah, we're actually uh, going to be looking tonight at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Um, and uh, what I want to do tonight is, is kind of a little bit like more of a Bible study rather than an actual sermon. So the idea is to just go through this passage, um, like verse by verse if we can. And now that we've got lights, we can actually do that. Um, and God willing, we'll be able to use the PowerPoint. We'll just see how we go. Looks like I've got thumbs up for that too. Um, so uh, as you can see by the actual PowerPoint there, our, our title of tonight's message is Walking Through the Seasons of Life. And there are very much seasons to our lives, and we'll go into that in a little bit more detail. But before we actually get into that, um, guys, I'm wondering, if can we play that clip or is it not available? Okay, no, the clip's not available. I was going to actually play a clip from The Seekers. Now, does anybody here remember who The Seekers are? Yes, we have some young people that actually remember who the Seekers are. Wow, that is fantastic because this song I'm talking about was actually a song that came about back in 1967. Mm, Some of you may not have been born at that particular time. And I think I was only seven years old myself. So, you know, but it was a song that was made very, very famous by uh, the birds originally and then, of course, took on by the Seekers and they sang it. And it's the song called Turn, Turn, Turn. Does anybody remember that one? Because the interesting thing about that particular song is that the majority of the actual song itself is taken from the book of Ecclesiastes. It's taken from Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse verses one through to sorry, chapter three, verses one through to eight. Now the opening verse of the song goes like this. It said, I won't sing it by the way, I don't want to destroy the evening. Uh, Turn, turn, turn to everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season turn, 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 and a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to reap, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to laugh, and a time to weep. That's the first verse of the actual song. Now, the song itself, when we actually look at it, it came out during the time of the Vietnam War. Uh, the Vietnam War, as most of you might know, actually started in 1955 and just continued on till around about 1975. But in 1967, there was a tremendous amount of anti-war protests going on. And this particular song was actually designed and, and, and brought about to, to get people thinking about peace and world peace. Well, of course, the only problem uh, with that is, uh, as, I have, as we've said from here before, there can never be any true peace without the, the Prince of Peace. Is that that not true? Man can literally devise all they want and they can do whatever they want, but without surrender to Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, true and lasting peace will always be an illusion that will be sought but never obtained. Is that not true? So when we look at this passage, it begs the question, What was on the heart of the writer of Ecclesiastes 3 verses 1 to 8 and what was God wanting to say to us today 
And to understand the writing, what we're going to do is we're first going to have a look a little bit at the context, but before we actually get into that, I'm just going to pray and ask God to reveal what he wants us to learn from this message tonight. Lord, we just thank you. Father, we thank you that you are a God who answers prayer. We thank you, Lord God, that, that Lord, the power has come back on. But Father, it doesn't matter whether the power is on or whether it's off. We can still worship you anywhere we need to, anywhere we want, Lord God, because your ears and your eyes are always open. And Father, we just thank you, Lord, that we can come to you in this place and we can gather around your word and we can look at it and we can discover new things from it. And Father, we just would pray that you would prepare our hearts, including my own, tonight, that there will be something fresh that we'll glean from this this, uh, message tonight. And Father, that we will take what we've learned and we will apply it to our lives. And we just ask these things and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, as I said, to understand the writing, we need to understand a little bit more about the actual context of the book itself. Now, it's widely understood, of course, that uh, Solomon was actually the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, where, how do we come up with that, of course? Well, we can come up with that from the fact that if we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, and Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12, we see Solomon himself writing the words there, the words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, we know that Solomon was the next king in Jerusalem after David, do we not? He, and, okay. And after Solomon's reign, the kingdom was then divided. Of course, we had Rehoboam, we had Jeroboam uh, with the northern and the southern kingdoms. Now, as always, if you're studying scripture, one of the best things to do is to actually interpret scripture and through the eyes of scripture. Don't try and interpret it without, you know, in your own eyes. So firstly, we need to look at the context of the passage. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 1 uh, and forward actually gives us insight into the book and its context. If we look at verse 1, it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. In verse 2, he says, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And in the senior service we've, uh, on Fridays, we've actually been going through this whole concept of, the, of uh, the, the book itself. We've been looking through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It's taken us a couple of years to get where we are so far. But praise God, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful study. Now, the word vanity here is the word basically that means it's meaningless. It, it has no value whatsoever. So when Solomon is saying uh, the vanity of vanities, all is vanity then he's saying, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. And what's he talking about? Now, in verse 3, it says, what profit, of chapter 1, it says, what profit hath a man of all his labour which he taketh under the sun? One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. That's what it says in verse 4. So as we read through Ecclesiastes, what becomes clear is that Solomon is writing toward the end of his life. In fact, it's actually, I think, from uh, the study that I did on that, on, on the actual um, uh, research, it shows that he wrote about five years, wrote this about five years before he died. Um, he is looking back over his life and he's drawing conclusions, which is something that we all have done It doesn't matter whether we're younger or whether we're older. We've all drawn conclusions uh, in terms of uh, our life and and, uh, what uh, has actually happened. I guess for people who are, say, my age upwards, we have the privilege of being able to look back a little bit more than some who are a little bit younger. Now, 
when I think of my own life, for example, I look back on it. And I, I, I look at the fact that I went to high school. I then embarked on a sales career. Um, and my focus was on being the absolute best that I could be in my chosen profession. In fact, there were times when I went out as a sales rep and there were times sometimes when I'd you know, pull in quite large commission checks and things like that. But the interesting thing, the problem, of course, was that this did not satisfy. It doesn't matter how much money a person have, can have. You can be Bill Gates. You can be anyone in the, in the world who is the richest man in the world and money will not satisfy. The more I got, I found the more I wanted. And, of course, the danger of that is that the more you want the more you're prepared to work, the more you're prepared to stay away from family and so on and so forth. So, it, it, you know, it's, it's not a good thing. As he looks back over his life, Solomon comes to the conclusion that all efforts in worldly pursuits are nothing but vanity and meaninglessness. He tells us there is nothing new under the sun and that life with purpose is a life to be lived in reverence to God and keeping good principles. Solomon, in fact, sums up life in one sentence. Now, turn with me, if you wouldn't mind, to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13, and we'll see exactly what he says there. Just got to look it up. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13, and it says there, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Hmm. Why does he say that? Why does he say it's the whole duty of man? Well, if we have a look then in the next verse, verse 14, we, we discover the answer. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Okay, what does that mean? That simply means that there is coming a day when every single one of us, you, me, every single one that's actually in this room are going to stand before God and he is going to judge us. Now, it's not for one minute saying that in the end God is going to weigh the good against the bad and then if we've done enough good, allow us into heaven. No, that's not what I'm saying. Because in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus actually tells us very, very clearly, does he not? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. The fact is that God sees and knows everything about our lives. From the time we are born to the time that we pass to stand in front of him in judgment. There is not one thing that literally escapes our eye, God's eye. You know, one, when I was growing up, my mum used to always tell me, be very, very careful you know, what you do because you know, God watches everything. He sees everything that you do. There is not one thing he misses. So in, the, in this context, Solomon is writing the words of Ecclesiastes 3 verses 1 to 8. Solomon describes how here how the life we live is made up of seasons which are all orchestrated by and in the hand of God, our loving creator. He knows our beginning from our end. He knows even the numbers of hairs upon your head. Some of us, of course, have got a few less than others. Uh, but that's okay. He knows the numbers of hairs that are on our, on our head. 
So what does he mean when he says in verse 1, to everything there is a season? I started thinking about this, so I got the old Oxford Dictionary out and I looked it up and it said each of the, the season refers to each of the four divisions of the year, spring, summer, autumn, winter, a period of the year marked by particular activity, uh, event or festivity, for example, the rainy season, or it's a fixed time of the year when a particular sporting activity is played, and I'm sure Pastor would be happy about this, the cricket season. Hmm. Yes, so that is a season. So from this description, we can see that the season refers primarily to a period of time. Okay, if that's the case, then with this in mind, let's go and let's have a little bit of a look and, and start looking into the verses. Verse 1, uh, for example, uh, there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. The, 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 this verse both summarises and sets the context for the next seven verses in that it points the fact that for everything that happens, there is a season and a purpose. Everything happens in its time. And what happens does not happen by sheer chance or coincidence, but it happens for a purpose. The day you were born, for example, didn't just happen by chance. The day of your birth was planned long before the foundations of the world were created. Now, there's something to think about. But before the foundations of this world, the world that we stand on was created, you were actually planned at that particular time to be born at this time and this space in in history. Hmm, interesting. It It also tells us that we live in a world of change. Okay, let's just move on with some of these slides. Day day turns to night. Night changes to day. Seasons seasons change. Is this working? No. Let me just turn it on. It will. Seasons. Guys, can we move that forward? Okay, should be right. No. Sorry, not working. There we go. Okay, we just skipped past uh, spring, but that's all right. So spring changes to summer. Summer changes to autumn. Here we go. And autumn changes to winter. Thanks, guys. The sun rises, which is the next one. Hopefully this will work. And the sun sets. Yes. The moon rises. And the moon sets. The clouds come and then they dissipate. Governments rise and governments fall. For everything God has created, there is a time and a season. Nothing has caught God unawares. Would we agree with that? Nothing. Because he is the beginning, as it says in Revelation, and he is also the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega, is what he says in Revelation. So in a sense, life itself can be divided up into seasons, which is what we can see from the next verses. In verse 2, we read the words, a time to be born, which is the next one, and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. When we look at this verse, the first thing we see is it has been appointed to all mankind a time to be born and a time to die. We all have a date 
that we came into this world. We then grew until we became an adult. This is what we could call the springtime of our life. For me, that occurred back on the 30th of December, 1959. And it was a day, uh, that was the day I came into the world as a baby, weighing four pounds and, what was it, ten ounces. Now, the interesting thing, of course, was that uh, my mum used to take great joy as I was growing up and even into my adulthood at telling people that uh, when I was actually a, a baby, just out of hospital, that my head was no bigger than a navel orange. <laughs> and you can imagine what it was like at 40 years of age when she'd tell people that. Uh, but she, she used to do that. And, of course, then she'd go on and proceed to tell them that I, I, she had to put me on a pillow so that I could be fed. Interesting. You know, so you've got to love mums. Um, that could explain why I'm only five foot six tall and why most of my nephews are six foot four. I have no idea what happened. Um, it's just one of those things. We all know the date that we were born, but none of us here can say that we know the exact date or time at which we will die. None of us. What we do know, however, is what the Bible teaches us, that, the, that death is universal. In 1 Samuel 14, verse 14, for example, it says, For we must needs die and are as water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person. In Psalm 89, verse 48, it says, What man is he that liveth and shall not see death? Shall he deliver his soul from the hand of the grave? God tells us very clearly that we have an appointed time at which we will die and after this comes the judgment. Remember Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27? The time of our and, or amount of days that we have between these two points is totally only known to God. Now, there's a little exercise that I want to do. One year equals approximately 365 days, does it not? Okay, now on my next birthday, I am going to be 60 years of, uh, of age, which means that according to the, the sums, I will have by that time lived 21,900 days, right? Okay, now, should God grant me the ability to live till I'm 90 years old, which is roughly when my mum passed away, um, that means that I will have lived 32,850 days. It's not bad when you think of it. That's a fair few days when you think about it. But then if we uh, do the maths, according to the calculations, that means I've only got 10,950 days left. Hmm. Different. Interesting when you look at it in that light, isn't it? It's a little bit different. You know? Of course, when we're younger, we look and we say, wow, I've got 32,000 days left. You know? <laughs> and so on. It could be longer and, and that sort of thing. Um, that is, of course, if the Lord doesn't return or that I go to him through death before then, which in case I will be actually with him in glory a whole lot sooner. I guess what I'm saying is that if we look at the picture painted by this passage, each of us are in what we would call a season of life. For some here, you are still in the springtime of your life. Some of the younger guys, you're in the springtime of your life. Enjoy it. Because trust me, as you get older things change. Uh, so enjoy that springtime. For others, you might be in the summer of your life, of course, with its busyness of work, its family, its social activity. 
where you attempt in many ways to turn your hopes and your ambitions and your dreams into reality. That was what I was like in my mid-30s. By going out and doing as much work as I could and earning as much money as I could, I thought I was making my dreams happen. But mm, things, things were different. For others here, we are either in the autumn or the winter of our lives. Springtime, summer have literally come and gone. Mm. With all their hopes, dreams and aspirations. But for many in the autumn and winter of, our, of their lives, they still believe that they can enjoy life. And we can. It doesn't matter how old we get. We can still enjoy life and we can still give thanks to God because he is the one that keeps our heart beating. And he is the one that keeps our our lungs working. In many ways, this idea of seasons of life is the thrust of what Solomon is saying in verse 2 through to 8, where he talks about all that takes place and seen throughout one's lifetime. So let's skip down to verse 2. It talks about a time to plant and a time to pluck up. The word plant here is the Hebrew word, meaning to strike in, to fix, to literally or figuratively fasten or plant. Now, if you're a gardener, totally unlike me, I'm a little bit like, you know, as Pastor has said in the past, if, if I'm given a plant, it comes to my place to die. Because you know, that's basically how, how what happens. Uh, my garden is not a real fantastic garden, I'm afraid. But that's okay. Um, so, if you're a gardener, you know, that's great. I'm not. Uh, let's, move, let's move on. Then in the same verse, we are told that there is also a time to pluck up that which is planted. The word used here is with, come, has with it the meaning of plucking up, especially by the roots. What do we do with weeds? We literally pluck them up by the roots, do we not? And it also uh, talks about stopping the growth of a plant. And of course, when, when a crop of potatoes come in, we, we pull it out. We literally stop its growth. We put it on the kitchen table and we bake it, we cook it, whatever, and, and so on. So that's the, that is the, the, the meanings of those words. In uh, verse 3, it then goes on and it says, a time to, uh, to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. These things are seen all through the Old Testament and on into the New. Then in verse 4, it talks about a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. Now, these are emotions that we've all experienced at some time in our lives, have we not? Weeping, for example, makes, is the making of lamentation or mourn with tears. To laugh means to play or rejoice. To mourn means to tear the hair and to beat the breast, to lament or to wail. I'm talking about the actual meanings of the original Hebrew words that were used here. In dance, the meaning there is to spring about, to jump, to leap or skip. Now, each one of us have either gone through or will go through one of these times during our lives. We've all wept for someone or with someone, have we not? We've laughed quite often as we have watched our children or other family members. Remember the dad that does all the dad jokes? Have we not laughed with, with those? Um, we've mourned over the loss of a loved one. We've all danced, whether it be physically or in the heart. 
all things we experience are part of the seasons in life. Verse 5 then goes on to say that there is a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Now, one of the things I love to do when I'm actually doing this kind of study is to actually look at the different words. And it's interesting when we look at the words in this verse, and particularly the word stones, why would Solomon talk about casting away and gathering stones, or is there another meaning? When we look at the Hebrew word that is used here, it's actually translated as stone, and its root meaning is to build or begin to build to obtain children to repair or set up. Hmm, that's interesting. So it would not be wrong to look at these words in the light of family. There is a time to have children and then there is a time to cast them off. Hmm. <laughs> I, I, I thought some people would find that interesting because we can, we can say that there is a time... To leave the nest. The interesting thing is that sometimes a lot of children are not leaving the nest until after they're 30-something. Is that not true? So, moving on. There is a time to embrace, and the word embrace here actually means to clasp and to fold. There is a time to refrain, and it simply means to loose or to remove. And used in the light of the word stones, referring to children, if we were to do that, there is a time to clasp onto our children and then there is a time to let them go and say, hey, it's time for you to leave the nest. You can live life on your own and you can do things on your own. In verse 6, he now tells us that there is a time to get and that there is a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. Again, it's good to look at the words. The word get here in the actual Hebrew means to search out specifically in worship or prayer and by implication the word means to strive after, to ask, to beseech, to desire, to inquire, to make a request. What this does, it actually reminds us that all we have, all we have has not come from our own efforts but it is the result of God's graciousness towards us. Once we fully understand this, we, can actually, we need to give God all the praise and the glory. The next word, such as lose, is by implication to perish or to fail. There will come a time in our life when we all will perish. But if we are honest, there have been many times when we have failed in our lives, no matter how young or how old we are. I put my hand up. I have failed many times in this life but praise God for his grace there is a time to keep and what keep means here is to hedge about with thorns to guard or to protect and then there's a time to cast away and of course it just simply means to throw out to throw down to throw away to cast forth or or cast off or out what's interesting about all this is the contrasts that we see in all that Solomon is saying here Verse 7, he then goes on to say there is a time to rend and there is a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Rend actually comes 
from the, from the Hebrew word korah, which means to cut out or to rend or to tear. And there's many, many passages in the Old Testament where we, it talks about that. I'll just give you a couple. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 11 says, We see God saying to Solomon, where what he says there is, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee. And then in Joel chapter 2, verse 13, he says, We see the prophet Joel giving warning to the people when he says, And rend your heart and not your garments and turn unto the Lord. And the emphasis here is what good is rending your garments if your heart is not right with God? What In each one of these examples, the Hebrew word that we see in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 7 is exactly the same word, but it's associated with different subjects. Now, of course, if it was the custom of the day, as we know, uh, that if there was a, a death in the family or, or, or something of that nature that caused, caused a tremendous amount of grief. It, in the Old Testament, it was not uncommon for men to literally tear, tear the front of their garments, to rend their garments. And, of course, we, we know this by what uh, Jacob did when he saw Joseph's coat of many colours drenched in, in blood, thinking that it was his own son that had died. He rent his garments. David likewise tore his clothes when he heard of the death of King Saul. So it's not an uncommon thing. The tearing of the garments and specifically that part that is over the heart was to symbolise the moment the torn and broken heart were within. It was to symbolise that, that heart that was broken. However, after the morning had passed... It was customary, it was a customary practice to actually sew up the rent garment to symbolise that a healing or mending had taken place in the person. Let's move on. Um, The next words are a time to keep silence and a time to speak. There are these are great words in a tiny little statement because I love what Matthew Henry wrote about this particular statement. He said A time when it becomes us and is our wisdom and duty to keep silence when it is an evil time when our speaking would be the casting of pearl before swine or when we are in danger of speaking amiss. But there is also a time to speak for the glory of God and the edification of others when silence would be the betraying of righteousness Cause and when with the mouth confession is made to, to salvation and it is a great part of Christian prudence to know when to speak and when to hold our peace. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I for one would have to say, my darling wife can testify this, I know how to put my foot in my mouth at times and speak when I'm not meant to speak um, and, and keep silent sometimes when, I'm not, when I am meant to speak. How important it is, though, for us to learn this and to adhere to it. We need, I believe, to pray daily for wisdom to know when to keep silent and when to speak. Finally, we come to the last two contrasts of the passage. Verse 8, we have a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. We'll just run through those uh, individually. These contrasts, in themselves, don't need too much explanation, do they not? 
except to say that the word that is rendered love is the Hebrew word or harb, meaning to have affection for or to like or to be a friend. Can we just go back to that, that uh, one on love and then we'll just run through these one at a time? Yeah, a time to love. This man is just simply showing this lovely elderly lady the love that she deserves and she needs um, and the affection. And there are times when we need to show friendship to one another, to be a friend, especially when someone we know is going through a crisis. Solomon here contrasts the time to love with the time to hate, which is the exact opposite of love. Now, if we move on to the next slide, it shows a scene from the war. And if, though, as Christians, we are called to love, as we are in 1 John 4 verse 7, why does it say then there is a time to hate? Let's think about that for a moment. What does it mean to hate and what, does it, what are we to hate as Christians? The word used here is the Hebrew word sornay and it means to hate personally, to be an enemy or a foe. As Christians, we are called to hate all things that are opposed to God. We are to hate those things that are an abomination to God because all these things are the result of Prideful sin, rebellion against God and his laws. What does it say in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 to 19? It tells us there seven things that God hates and are an abomination to him. What are they? A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. If these are things that God hates and are an abomination to him, then they should also be things that we as Christians hate. Notice, though, the interesting thing about this is that he does not anywhere state in these verses that God hates the person. On the contrary, God loves the person, even the person that does all of these things. John 3.16 said it all when it says, For God so loved the world, and you can actually substitute your own name in there, for God so loved such and such. And you can, uh, and, you know, we can see here a clear contrast. Although God loves the person, he hates the sin. And so he's calling people to come and bring their sin to the foot of the cross. Lastly, Solomon writes, there is a time for war and there is a time for peace. Wars have been occurring, have they not, for ver- for ver- uh, over various times, right throughout the history of mankind. Down through the centuries, wars have been fought because of tyranny and corruption, because of disputes over religion, over land and even food or the ability to produce it. None of these wars started and fought by man have ever brought a lasting peace, have they? Even World War II did not bring a lasting peace. There was many wars that followed that and there are still wars going on throughout the world today. There is good news, though, in all of this that sounds like pretty sombre sort of words. And as we read in the book of Revelation... It says, 
I heard a great voice out of, out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things have passed away. At this point, everlasting peace will reign because why? The Prince of Peace, Jesus himself, will be reigning on the uh, reigning forever and ever. Let's hear an amen for that one. Amen. What all these contrasts show is that we live in a world of constant change, yet one thing remains constant. As Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1 shows, just as there are seasons upon the earth, so too there are seasons to our lives. And in those seasons there is a time for every purpose under heaven. Nothing whatsoever happens by chance. God has a purpose in everything that happens in our life. What we need to remember is that it is God who created the seasons And it is God who gives purpose to everything, especially our lives. What's your purpose tonight? Is it in the one who created all things, yet came out of heaven and suffered and bled and died so that you could live forever? Hmm. That's what I'm going to leave with you tonight. What is your purpose tonight? And the fact that there is seasons to all of our life. Some of us, as I said before, are in the springtime. Others are in the, in the summer. Others are in the autumn. And some of us are in the winter of our lives. But praise God what we have to look forward to, regardless of what season of life we're in. Praise God we have heaven to look forward to and an eternity with Christ Jesus forever and ever and ever. Amen. What a wonderful thing to look forward to, that our sins are forgiven. We are redeemed. And the best part is we are God's children. And we can call God Abba Father just the same as Jesus calls him Abba Father because he is our heavenly daddy as well. So if you take anything away with you tonight, just take away that, that fact that we are, yes, we are going through seasons. But praise God, we have a, the eternity which is coming. Okay? Right. Um, on that note, we might 